Welcome back to A Place for Film, the official IE Cinema Podcast. My name is David Carter, and joining me as always is my co-host, Elizabeth Rell, in our emergency episode. Very topical. Elizabeth, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Hanging in there. I'm having fun Christmas shopping for everyone that I know. So there's that. But yeah, the holiday is over. It somehow lasted a million years and <laughs> 10 minutes. I don't know. Uh, the time is a construct. I don't get it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, but we're coming We're coming hot and fast on this episode. Uh, we were originally not going to... Ha- I was thinking about not having an episode this week and saving our mojo for, you know, the holidays coming up, the other, the other holidays. Uh, and then last night... Some very uh, seismic news broke via Deadline.com that, uh, you know, Warner Brothers is dropping their entire 2020 and 2021 film slate all together on HBO Max all in the same day. Day and date. It's all in the same day? I missed that part. No, I mean, it's all right. Same day, like day and date. Oh, I was like, yeah. what? Uh, and that has a lot of repercussions that I'd like to get into. So we we just wanted to uh, be on topic, you know, something we can rarely do sometimes and discuss it. But before we discuss that, Mm -hmm. we're going to very quickly tell you what's coming up at the IE Cinema next week. So join us there. So we are nearing the end of our semester. Uh, this is going to be our second to last week of programming. Um, first up, we have the world premiere of IU2020 Part 2 on December 8th, which is a Tuesday at 7 p.m. Um, we already premiered Part 1. Uh, if you've been to the cinema in the last however many years, you've seen the little trailers of the IU2020 students. Um, and this is like the full film. I'm not sure exactly if it contains parts of those trailers, but probably has parts and then fleshes out things on their journey. Um, if you haven't been to the IU Cinema, though, uh, this has followed... Uh, the the class of 2020 a few students from that since 2016 it followed them through their entire undergraduate career um and we are gonna have the um like the filmmakers and we're gonna have the subjects and everyone's gonna be on for a Q&A afterwards and it'll be a lot of fun I heard the first one was a lot of fun and interesting so come see the second one I will be there hosting Hey, that's hey. what I was going to ask about. Yeah, I, that'll be my hosting one. Yay. Uh, is, <laughs> there a way for people, is there a way for people to watch the first one if they missed it somehow or they have to wait? I believe that you, they're just look, they just want anyone to watch it. So if you go to the website and search IU2020, um, both of them are available via their web pages. I've been considering watching this considering that they played before so many movies at the IU Cinema for so long. And I'm just like, maybe I should finally see what the, how this all turned out yeah. <laughs> at, the, at the end of the day. Uh, what else is going on at the cinema, Elizabeth? 
Uh, so our other special virtual event uh, will be Friday, December 11th at 7 p.m. Uh, we are going to have Ken and Florence Jacobs on for an interactive Q&A with our one of our favorites, uh, IU Media School Associate Professor Joan Hawkins. Hey, lovely. We love Joan. We love Joan. Um, so for those who don't know, Ken Jacobs is an experimental filmmaker um and he and his wife have kind of like worked together on films his entire career um and we're gonna have them on we were supposed to have them on in the spring but it obviously got canceled um and they are a little older um they're higher up in age so it's nice that we can do it virtually and do it safely right now um we do you will get access to the film razzle dazzle the lost world when you sign up for this um no cost required at all but so you'll have access to that and then also there is a link on the page to his vimeo channel which has a bunch of other of his films but they are experimental so don't go into it and be really surprised when there's no dialogue or people (laughs) (laughs) and then the only other thing is that also on the 11th we will start offering the new series World of Wong Kar Wai. Yes. Which is very, I'm very exciting. excited for this. <laughs> um, they have new 4K restorations of seven, six of his films, but there are seven in the series. Um, and they will each be available either as a $12 film rental per, or you can rent all seven for $70. So you're saving. Some money. I'm not going to do the math. <laughs> that is a, that is that is quite honestly a steal. Once again, a lot of these films have been out of print for such a long time. They've been hard to view. Uh, I think he is one of our premier uh, romantic filmmakers, like in the in like the proper usage mm-hmm. of the word. I love Wong Kar Wai. I think In the Mood for Love is one of the greatest films ever made. I think Chunking Express is one of the most exciting films ever made. Things like Fallen Angels and Happy Together are just incredible. Uh, the the, the not-so-secret secret that there's a Criterion box set of all his films are coming out sometime early next year. Uh, we will certainly be doing one or multiple episodes of him in the future. I just, I love him so much. So please do not miss out on this. This is an incredible opportunity to watch seven of probably the greatest films of the late 20th and early 21st century. Sorry for the hyperbole. <laughs> no, I'm excited. I didn't. I haven't seen any yet, so I can't speak to them. But watch your DVD copy of In the Mood for Love, Elizabeth. I literally have a copy of it, and I haven't watched it yet. I'm sorry. Sit down with Ryan and watch In the Mood for Love. It's great. <laughs> yeah. Is it? Uh... <laughs> yeah. No, I won't ask because I don't want to know anything about it. I mean, if you're interested, I did write a piece about it for the Ice in a blog a long time ago. I think it's like one of the more popular pieces I wrote. People constantly click on it. I don't know. But Mm. yes. Well, I'm not going to read it after I watch it. Okay. Um, Sorry sorry about that. Is there anything else? Nope. Well, we're going to zoom ahead and talk about what we watched this week. Uh, but before we do that, we have someone very special to introduce. Returning to the podcast for the third, it's the third or the fourth time? Third? Third, because uh, the Indigenous Peoples episode. And then what is the one I'm forgetting? Is that when we talked about blockers? Correct. We talked about sex comedies. 
So coming back to the podcast is the lovely, the one of the patron saints of Bloomington, Indiana, from the BCT, from Vulture Video. <laughs> Uh, just a lovely, pre- just a lovely presence around town, Miss Ava Cloudin. Hi, Ava. Hello. Thank you for having me. <laughs> I always make the cardinal sin of not talking before they say your name. Oh, I, I truly don't care about that. Uh, <laughs> I truly prefer it. Unfortunately, though, it's kind of a, I w- if I kept doing, it, I was like, it's too much like me stealing a bit from podcasts I listen to. So I, I've decided to not be the one who does it. So it's nice that you decided to do it on your own accord. well thank you ava uh we're gonna get into what we watched this week so join us there elizabeth what did you put into your eyeballs this week? Um, what did you rub all over your retinas? Ew. Ew. Uh, <laughs> hopefully nothing. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, we've been watching the OC now, but it's not really what I watched this week. More, It's, it's what I listened to this week. Um, what did you listen to this week? I am finally getting around to listening to um, the Polly Platt episodes of You Should Remember This. Is that what it's called? You must remember this. You must remember this. Um, Yes. Which I hadn't listened to before, uh, but then everyone started talking about the Polly Platt ones, and I was like, I need to listen to those because that sounds like something right up my alley, and I can't stop listening to it. Did you listen to the complete series or the or are you saying you can't stop listening to the podcast in general? Um, so I'm not done with the series yet because I like to like actually really focus on it so that I know what's happening, which means I can't my brain cannot listen to the podcast and work at the same time or do anything really besides like clean and shower. Um, so I am on the which episode is this? episode i'm only on episode four but they're like hour-long episodes yeah past filmmaker or uh chris ray who was on our one of our episodes earlier this year she had uh invoked it um i had i had decided to re-listen to it after listen like after listening to a talk about it uh for those who don't know polly platt was the uh wife of director peter bogdanovich former i used to guest Yes, former I assume a guest. Although saying that doesn't about to what I'm about to say doesn't paint him in the best light. Um, uh, uh, but yes, she they were they were married, and uh, it is largely believed that uh, after you know years of hagiography and things have passed, that she was responsible for the first three films in his career. The ones that I would largely consider good films uh, were pretty much of her doing. And then it has come out and come to light that she essentially wrote an unpublished memoir that spilled all about her life up until a certain point. And this uh, podcast, so lovely, so lovely, um, narrated and written by Karina Longworth, is 
like her interviewing people who were close to Polly, reading passages from this memoir, and you find out that Polly Platt is this incredibly seismic figure, not in just Peter Bogdanovich's career, but in the career of so many films and filmmakers from like the late 20th century, like all the way up to essentially giving Wes Anderson his career. And she is, and it's called Polly Platt, the Invisible Woman for a reason, because it wasn't until recent that like a lot of this kind of came to light uh, because she never directed a movie herself and she did write screenplays for movies and she, she was a producer, but uh, she never really got like the attention she deserved from those things. Uh, and it's an incredible series and it, it does, you know, which I think is important, especially given what I'm going to talk about for my film topic. Uh it does recontextualize a lot of what, you know, what we consider this genius auteur's work. Uh, it's no coincidence uh, that those first three movies, uh, Last Picture Show, What's Up Doc, and uh, Paper Moon are great. And no one talks about the ones that come after that. That's the way I'll frame it. And it's no coincidence that she stops working with him after those three movies. So draw your own conclusions, although the podcast kind of draws them for you. <laughs> <laughs> So you're enjoying it? You're four episodes in? Yeah. So I just got – so they're separated, um, her and Peter, and she's visiting Orson Welles and his mistress who is around her age. Um, so that's where I am. So I'm right before Paper Moon, I think. Yeah, they were the they were separated when they made Paper Moon together, but he asked her to come back. She like, wasn't dumb at this point. I highly recommend everyone listen to – that podcast i think it's incredible but i'll use that as a transition into the movie that i watched which was the movie that was released 12 hours ago in california <laughs> on netflix or whatever uh the new david fincher movie in the last six years mank about herman mankowitz the co-writer of uh of uh citizen kane uh and it is it sparked a much debate online and already the short time it's been out i think i'm in the tank for mank that's, yeah, that's the best. Way. Yeah, yeah. I made a withdrawal from the Mank Bank. I'm pretty rich now. Ew. Uh, <laughs> you're being so gross today. Uh, yes. Um, it it is an incredible movie. It's shot stylistically as an old Hollywood film. Cigarette burns in the corner of the screen and all every twenty some odd minutes. Mm. Uh. It has most. It's mostly a lot of I would say like character actors and some unknowns in roles. It does star Gary Oldman as the titular Mank, and it has Amanda Seyfried as I know you're making a grimacing face. I understand. <laughs> um, it had uh, has Amanda, Amanda. Not to Amanda. No, no, I know who you're grimacing at. Uh, <laughs> I just wanted to clear that up. To I like Amanda, just so everyone. Yes, knows. and she is <laughs> she is great in the movie as uh, as uh, William Randolph Hearst's. Uh, wife or partner uh who William Randolph Hearst is played by Charles Dance who you probably most famously know from Game of Thrones or the bad guy in the last action hero uh many films uh Charles Dance is an incredible actor and the movie itself is like really it's not so much about the authorship of of Citizen Kane it really it is like at the end like there are parts of that because there's a lot of debate as to how much Orson Welles actually contributed to that screenplay it goes into the fact that like Herman Mankiewicz had originally signed away his involvement with the film because he was such a pariah in Hollywood at that point. And so like Orson Welles was going to take full credit for it. And then at the last minute he said like, I don't want any of the money or anything. I just want credit for the film because it's the best thing I've ever written. Mm -hmm. um, the film itself is like 
kind of playing off of Citizen Kane. But the movie isn't really so much about that as much as it's about uh, about our topic today, about how art and commerce have this weird opposing and attracting relationship to each other in which art and commerce cannot exist independently of each other, even if art and commerce are at odds with each other. It's super interesting. It also gets into the fact, like, it's also a very timely movie because it's about takes place like during the rise of Hitler and there's lots of talks about the rise of conservatism in the United States and like a lot of anti-socialist rhetoric. Um, It's about what I call, you know, one of my favorite tropes and also overplay tropes in the movie, which is the man who is right, but too unlikable for anybody to pay attention to him. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is, uh, and that is what Mank is about. I think this movie is incredible. It's obviously, it's been under a lot of scrutiny from people who are more familiar with old Hollywood. It's really a, dialogue between this essay that Pauline Kael wrote about Herman Mankiewicz. Like that's where it's kind of borrowing from about like his like secret involvement, much like Polly Platt, his like kind of small involvement with like a lot of pictures and like the cohesiveness, like that ties them all together and like the like voice he brings to them. Speaking of Peter Bogdanovich, you chose a great topic for the, for this to be spun <laughs> off of. And speaking yeah. of Peter Bogdanovich, Orson, he did interviews with Orson Welles where Orson Welles like refutes, a lot of those things and so there's always been a lot of debate as to who is the true author of citizen kane to me it's kind of a stupid debate because the whole point of filmmaking is that it's not one person's visions it's a lot of person it's a lot of people working together coming together like there is no tr- there's no such thing as a true auteur no matter how much i like directors it doesn't exist so but yeah the movie is more about art and commerce and how those things rub against each other so i think it's good I say all all criticisms of it are valid. It's very early on. I hope the conversation around this movie extends past the next two weeks. How long is this movie? It is two hours and twelve minutes, but it truly doesn't feel like it. Okay. It's a lot like Citizen Kane in that like that's like a two hour movie. Doesn't feel like it. It's also structured exactly like Citizen Kane. Mm-hmm. Um, also interesting enough, I didn't uh, know this. Written by uh, David Fincher's deceased father, like long deceased father, like a screenplay, the only screenplay he ever wrote. His father, Jack Fincher, was a journalist and he wrote the screenplay about Herman Mankiewicz. And it's, it's a snap, it's a snappy screenplay. Like I'm, I'm a fan. So take it that way you will. It might come up in conversation as we try to salvage some sort of awards episode in the future. (gasps) I know, right? Because they didn't cancel any of the awards. So (laughs) Oh, I was just remembering that they're doing it IRL. I'm so nervous for everybody. I know it's, yeah, it's going to be crazy. But Ava, what did you watch this week? Yes. Um, I'm not going to talk about my experience with 51st Dates, although I did watch that. <laughs> Think about Happiest Season. Yes, I watched Happiest Season. I did. Yes, that's my pick. Um, I have a lot of feelings. For, for those who don't know, what is Happiest Season, Ava? Happy Season is the new Hulu holiday movie starring Kristen Stewart and a bunch of other people where you're like, oh, that person, like the dad from Glee and like I can do the cast list, I think, from my brain. Uh, Mackenzie Davis is Kristen Stewart's uh, fiance, well, not fiance, sorry, uh, <laughs> but girlfriend. Um, it's directed by Clea Duvall, stars Victor Garber, Dan Levy, who's, uh, you know, from Schitt's Creek fame. Uh, Mary Steenburgen, uh, Allison Brie, Allison Brie, Aubrey Plaza. It's it's a it's a stacked cast of of queer and uh, queer friendly actors directed by a gay woman. 
Yes. So I saw all of that information. I saw the cast. I saw the trailer. I was like, this movie is going to be so good. And then I forgot movies can look good and still be bad. And that was scary. It was nice seeing Aubrey Plaza do something that was kind of outside of her grumpy, drony box. That was kind of cute. Yes. Um, but it just mostly made me upset. Like, there were so many points where I would not have stayed in that relationship. And it was, like, painful to watch someone stay in a relationship like that. And then you just, like, smile at the end and everybody has a happy holiday. But Allison Brie rocks some, like, very dramatic haircuts that look surprisingly good on her. I was there for it. She plays a very good Republican wife. Exactly. She's got, like, that aggressively sharp fringe. I was like, okay, mm-hmm. let's see you donating to those packs. <laughs> It was one of those movies in which, like, it, it was exactly exactly what I expected it to be. <laughs> like, I was like, this is going to be a by-the-numbers romantic comedy, except everyone happens to be gay. I that was at least a little subversive or something. Not at all. It is a main, it is like a 2006 romantic comedy. <laughs> it's like pretty much like beat for beat. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, I enjoy I enjoy Kristen Stewart a lot. I mean, I enjoy everyone in this cast a lot. That's mm-hmm. why I watched the movie, because I enjoyed the cast. It's just one of those things that, like, the, the kindest thing I'll say about it is what we all, what I always think filmmaking inclusivity strive for is that when people in marginalized groups make art, they have the right to make bad art. <laughs> That's underwhelming, too. Not everything has to be moonlight. Yep. So. Like, I'm super happy that Clea Duvall got to make her two and a half, three star romantic comedy with a great cast. Like I'm happy that she got to do pretty. it. I love it. Uh, Elizabeth, do you have any interest in watching? It's one of those things, like, it won't make you mad. It's just, oh. it, it's just truly, you might forget you watched it after Maybe. you're done. Oh, Ava disagrees. You might make you mad. <laughs> I was mad. It's just like, there are so many choices that no one should make. Like, do not do that to someone. Like, why would you even write that? Is it cute? Is it funny? I don't think so. It just seems traumatic and terrible. <laughs> yeah, I'm interested in watching it. I've been interested in watching it. I just haven't gotten around to it yet. Um, I asked Ryan if he wanted to watch it, and he seemed lukewarm. So it may just be a thing that I, I know. <laughs> I think he's just lukewarm on, like, romantic comedies in general. Uh, we did watch the holiday, and he didn't hate that. So hey, we watched the holiday. I just watched the holiday again. Yes, isn't it the best? <laughs> Are so. you still t- uh, your team? Jack Black, Kate Winslet, right? Are you team Cameron? And why would uh, I need to choose? Who has? I'm just saying. Experience? Wh- wh- yeah, which is the half? Which half do you enjoy better um, in the holiday? I enjoy Kate Winslet and Jack Black better, but Jude Law in this movie. <laughs> I think that's the only thing you can say about the holiday and the Jude Law, the Jude Law Cameron Diaz part is that it has Jude Law in it. And he's really good. Mr. Napkinhead, yeah. <laughs> I mean, he gets the great line. I am daddy. It's I so had good. Like, poker face that because Ryan had never seen it. And I knew that if I like lost my mind, he'd be very confused. <laughs> uh well, with that, I think we're going to get to our main topic so we can spend a little bit of time on it. We are going to talk about Warner Brothers' decision to release all of the films day and date on streaming as well as the state of the theatrical experience, which I'm sure will, this won't be the only episode on it, but please, let's talk about it. Nobody move, there's blood on the floor. 
Okay, so last night, or last evening, or afternoon, I guess, before I went to work, right before I went to work, it was at like 2 o'clock or something like that, or 1.30, uh, Deadline dropped an article that Warner Brothers was going to release all of their big budget movies onto HBO Max day and date with theaters, which includes the movies, The Little Things, Judas, Black Messiah, Tom and Jerry, Godzilla vs. King Kong, uh, Mortal Kombat, uh, those who wish me dead the conjuring uh in the heights space jam a new legacy the suicide squad reminiscence dune the many saints of newark uh king richard cry macho and the matrix four <sighs> no um this comes off of the heels of them announcing that they're going to release wonder woman uh 1984 onto um hbo max on christmas day it's also this coming off the heels of the Paramount decrees uh, ending in August of this year and the fear of people wanting to like places like Disney wanting to like purchase movie theaters and vertical integration and all that. It's essentially this is a seismic decision that it to me, it personally reads like you can't put the genie back in the bottle if you do something like this. And it essentially spells the end of theaters as a common middle brow anyone like accessible to all people activity and it puts it square in the realm of theaters at best will become like jazz clubs or opera houses where only a select few of like artistically inclined people or rich people have access to them or interest in going to those things so i just am curious i have my whole the sky is falling rant to go on but i would just very curious to hear what both of you think about this <sighs> I'm sad. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's like, I mean, what, what does the future look like now? You know, like they're setting this press precedent and like Disney plus already kind of did with like Mulan and now soul and now wonder woman. And it's just kind of like avalanched from there. And like, yeah, like I'm not, fully expecting things to be normal next year i don't know i mean i know people who are just going about their normal lives but we won't talk about them but like any sane person is not being like oh yeah january 1 we're just gonna be back to normal like that's not how it works so like i don't know find the i just wish the movie theaters were sustaining and didn't have to be open right now because it's safer to not be open but that's not the way capitalism works. So now we have this, and now who knows what's going to happen to movie theaters. Yes. Ava? I am also sad. <laughs> <laughs> We're all sad. Yes. I just love the movie theater experience so much. It's my favorite thing. Just like a random like Monday afternoon, just alone in a movie theater two other people seeing like the matinee for Parasite for the 15th time in February or something like there's just no space like it and that it's so open and available to everything and to everyone is what makes it so charming to me. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, yeah. I mean, the man, I have a lot of thoughts on this and maybe the, the 15 minutes we I was going to devote to it is truly not enough. So we might have to do a second episode, but I just think about how we got here and it just makes me sad. So essentially how we got here, you don't, I'm not, you don't blame people and you don't really actually blame movie theaters. 
you have to kind of blame the federal government. <laughs> you have to because essentially for everything at this point. Yes, I mean as you should. <laughs> um, essentially, this is happening because the precursor of this being like people are already kind of getting comfortable in the idea of like watching big things from like the comfort of their home, even if those things like disappear from conversation or aren't up to like an equality people just kind of got used to the idea that it's just like a, well i can watch from but you can actual DJs to the movie theater no one cares. <laughs> <laughs> but this happened because essentially the federal government didn't bail out arts venues venues are like struggling right now there's not just movie theaters it's like mm-hmm. all venues are struggling because the bailouts that companies got didn't go to venues and it's kind of actually insane to think about that something like an amc or a regal these billion dollar companies like weren't able to lobby or chose not to lobby for bailout money for -hmm. their billion dollar companies. And that's essentially how we got here. And since the pandemic started, it's just been a lot of very short-sighted, slippery slope decision-making of, well, we made this thing, we can't sit on it because theaters aren't going to open because America isn't going to open safely. So we have to like keep interest in these things. And so they've just been releasing them, but no one's made a long-term plan for anything. And I don't, and so essentially the short-term plan for a lot of these companies is like, we're just going to build an install base for our streaming services. That's what Disney is doing. That is now what Warner Brothers is doing. And like Disney obviously owns a large part of the market share, but I would say like right behind them is probably Warner Brothers because it's another conglomerate owned by, it's owned by AT&T. It's its own, it's its own conglomerate. I would say as far as like visibility of like blockbusters, I would say Warner Brothers is right behind is not right behind, but it's behind Disney. Um, Essentially what you're looking at it, I'm not so great at the business of how these things work. All I know is that when the Paramount decrees fell in August, that essentially opened for those who don't know the Paramount decrees were these, Laws put these antitrust laws put in place so that movie theaters uh, and studios could not own the distribution, exhibition, and production of movies because that's a monopoly. Like, Mm -hmm. therefore, if you own all those things, you can set the prices and the terms and the quality of the things you make. It was struck down. And for the past seven years, we've been living in a paramount decree rich world in which, like, you get variety. You get many, you get a an array of studios. Like the thing that capitalism is supposed to do is like breed innovation. And to a certain extent, that kind of happened. People, people innovated. You get a lot of independent uh, film movements during this period. Uh, but what happened was is someone lobbied, probably Disney, <laughs> to with the argument that like one, a lot of those companies in the in the Paramount decrees don't exist anymore. Like RKO, RKO doesn't exist anymore. Things like that. Um, and the ones that do exist, like Paramount is like on its last legs. And Disney wasn't this huge, massive thing when these decrees came down back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, they were argued that like those companies don't exist anymore. There are new companies. There are also new modes of distribution. Ergo, this shouldn't exist anymore. Not, ergo, maybe we should rewrite the laws to include these things. They did that. They didn't do that on purpose because their plan is places like Disney and even places like Netflix or Amazon or whatever, what have you. Their long term plan is we want everyone subscribed to our streaming service. But for those who want the boutique experience of going to see a movie, we will provide that for them with our own movie theaters that only show our movies. 
And obviously Disney is an incredible place for that because they don't just have their catalog. They have Fox's entire catalog, Mm -hmm. which in itself is like this whole wellspring of like film history and like titles and things they can build off of something like Warner Brothers. I could very much see like trying like with HBO Max It's pretty clear that they have like a wellspring of other companies that they own. I could very easily see them like trying to acquire some like an A24 or something like that to like be like a and we also have indie films and mm-hmm. going forward with that so that's the paramount decrees and now essentially what warner brothers has done is just like you can't put the genie in the back in the bottle for a normal moviegoer because if they can watch dune in their house they're going to watch dune in their house now what i don't think normal people understand is like sure yes 2021 2022 that you'll you'll probably have a lot of fun with that the problem is is like the only reason blockbusters got made in the first place is because people paid money to go see them. An HBO Max mm-hmm. subscription or a Disney Plus subscription isn't a sustainable model to make blockbusters. That's on the big obvious end. The The smaller end is like indie film is all but going to be relegated to streaming. And the mid-budget movie is going to disappear, essentially, because there's no venue for them. Uh And the thing I worry about the most is not the, well, I do worry about the monopoly antitrust law part of it a lot. uh, But the part of it I worry about is the quality part in the conversation part of cinema, which is to me that I I use this example on Twitter. I said the problem, like a parasite or get out. Those movies were mid to low budget movies. They one's a foreign film, one's like a hor- like a, a a niche horror film. Essentially, the reason those movies became a cultural and financial hit, but emphasis on cultural, people still talk about Parasite and Get Out to this very day. Lots of memes, lots of essays still being written about these movies, uh, is because it had the theatrical rollout and word of mouth of like, hey, you should go see this movie. They play in theaters for a long time. And even if you're a person who doesn't go to the movie theater every week, if a movie has buzz around it, it's like a nice event for you to go out to and see and watch it. Mm -hmm. And you might you like you might enjoy it. You might not enjoy it. Whatever. You at least went on saw it. It's within the zeitgeist. And because of that, you get conversation. You get people reevaluating a movie. You get people inspired by the movie. Makes better art. That is the way art typically tends to work. The problem with releasing something on streaming is that even a movie like Mank, which is by a director who's a big deal with art house crowd and film bros alike. Uh, can't like this movie's gonna come out, and I already know to the bottom of my heart, people are gonna talk about it for the next two to three weeks, and then everyone's gonna move on to the next thing. That's exactly what would happen with Get Out and Parasite. People would be like, uh, oh man, so good. It would be met with strong reviews. People talk about it for two weeks, they make their memes, they move on to the very next movie. No one talks about it. We have examples of this: The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, mm-hmm. Okja, Okja, The what's Other the, Side of the Wind, the Charlie Kaufman movie that just came out. Yes, no the, I'm thinking about. of ending things. No one has talked about that movie since the month it came out. Mm-hmm. And like, obviously, it's a kind of a divisive movie, but for the most part, aimed like critically positive. Yeah. And yet, no one is talking about it. And this is why I don't think people understand how bad. The, the, like the advent of like everything going direct to streaming or day and date with movie theaters is because it just kills the conversation and analysis and appreciation of movies. And I'm not talking about in this like highfalutin, 
college brain way. <laughs> I mean, in like a very basic, like the way people would talk about the Titanic when it came out in 1998, just on that very basic level, just like a an exchange of ideas or inspiration in mm-hmm. that like ter- like that terrifies me on like an existential level. I haven't even gotten to the idea, which is what you mentioned, Ava, which is the idea of just like going to the movies in itself is has its own alchemy because like I watched Mank this morning. I turned my phone off. I I was like, I'm blocking out everything. I've tried this a lot during quarantine. Mm-hmm. It doesn't fully work. You can't fully get absorbed into a movie at your house, no matter how hard you try. Yeah. And I'm a person who is like a movie pervert. I try to <laughs> replicate the <laughs> the best experience I possibly can. For most people, like they don't care if they're going to be on their phones or like checking emails or like getting up and not letting the movie run while they go get a glass of water. Like they mm-hmm. don't care. Now, it's your right to... Uh, to consume art that way i'm not really judging you but the problem with that is like you don't get the same experience watching a movie that way let you get in a movie theater where like whatever that alchemy is of a dark room and a light and a flicker from a bulb like it absorbs you into the movie either for the better or for worse it's why you have strong it's why i feel like when people watch things on streaming they're usually more middling than they are positive or negative on them mm-hmm. they're usually like it was fine Whereas I think if they watch the same movie in a theater, they'd either be like, a, oh, that was really good. Or like, oh, that was awful. Like, mm-hmm. because they have, because they had to devote their attention to it. So that is my mm-hmm. biggest worry about this. And I don't know, I don't have any answers for this. Like, I truly think like, unless someone steps in, be it the federal government or like theaters, which I guess don't have the money anymore for lobbying things, uh, step in to like get some sort of assistance like places like the iu cinema are will be the only places like you can go and see movies like it truly will it'll be for it'll be for classic films and indie films and mid-budget films you go to places like an alamo draft house or an iu cinema or whatever but if you want to see a blockbuster or something that's like slightly below a blockbuster you will go to the disney theater or the warner brothers theater or the whatever theater to watch those movies and you will pay a lot of money to watch them there. Like the idea of like tickets being $10 in Indiana will be a thing of the past. You'll be paying $20. You will be paying New York prices for movie tickets. Right. And everyone was like, $10 is too much to pay to see Captain America. And it's like, oh yeah. Uh, It's going to take the whole family to see a movie in a Disney theater. Yeah. Well, I mean, and then their argument for that is going to be, well, they don't have to go to the theater. They can just watch it in their house because they have a whole family. But it's just like, that's not, the same thing it's 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 just not this the same thing another people another thing people aren't realizing is that disney has secretly i think this is a theory this is not on the record and any the mandalorian to me plays like a test pilot for them to transition from making blockbusters as movies to making them as tv shows in which they can make them cheaper with the illusion of a bigger budget and Mm -hmm. also it's because they're 30 to one hour episodes they can like stretch things out for a longer amount of time Mm it's like i wouldn't be surprised if disney after a certain stretch of time is like yes the last few marvel movies are coming out now it's pretty much only marvel tv shows or the last few like disney original movies are coming out we're just gonna make live action or animated tv shows or pixar tv shows or whatever that's see like i just don't have an interest like Okay, I was like a little bit interested in the Loki TV show because we all know I'm weak for Tom Hiddleston. But like, <laughs> I had saw like teasers for the Wanda Vision thing. Yeah, or what, and I'm like, okay, 
Like, that's how yeah. I felt. Like, mm, I don't really care. I'm not going to watch it. I'm like, who is actually going to stick with all these things? Yeah. To- I hope it. I mean, that's the other thing. I don't think they take into account that people are so fatigued from the amount of television on TV. Like, it, it it's just too much. Like, if anything, quarantine has taught me is just like, a, I have to stick to like one or two things. Like, I can't catch mm-hmm. up with all these things. It's impossible now. Yeah. And. It, it just, I don't know, it changes the nature of adaptation. Like if we are going to stick with the whole property thing, it changes that. It changes the nature of transparency because I, I quote, I tweeted this and I was just like, if we're going to do this, then like y'all got to release the real numbers of like how many views these things get. Right. And like when I say real numbers, I mean like I want to know how many people watched the whole movie. Yeah. Not yeah. not turned it on after fifth, and then was like, uh, I'm tired. I'm going to go to bed and turn it off for 15 minutes and didn't pick it up right. later and finish it. Like that's, those are the numbers I want because like Netflix is essentially giving us the chilling future of like, they can say whatever movie is the highest gross, like 3 billion people watched whatever movie like, and it's just like, huh, interesting. I haven't heard one person talk about this movie since the six hour window. It was released. Yep. Like remember bird box, which was like technically a hit. People (laughs) stopped talking about bird box after four days. Yeah. I don't (laughs) I, I'm sorry, guys. I just, that was, <laughs> I got on my soapbox for a second. We said we'd keep this a short episode, so I will say, do you guys have any final thoughts? I think this is something we're going to have to revisit in the future, Elizabeth. Yeah. I mean, I have final thoughts, too. Um, yeah. Two things looking forward to, like, or not looking forward, but looking into the future. Like, does this mean we're only getting the, like, stupid nerd bro movies in theaters now? Like, I'm not just, like... My, I, if my future is only Tarantino and Nolan movies in the theater, I will rip my hair out. So, like, where do filmmakers play into this? Because no filmmaker, at least that from interviews I hear, no filmmaker goes into a movie and is like, I want to make this for HBO Max. Like, I want people to watch it on their phones, you know? Like, everyone's like, obviously, like, however you can access it, but ideally, it's on the big screen. So, like, what filmmakers have what pull? Like, they have to know that it's going to have, like, doing same-day release is going to have an effect. So, like, where do they play into this? And then also, I was just thinking, like, super long-term, how many people who create movies have talked about, like, movie change, like, life-changing movie experiences being in the theater? So if that, like, obviously this is going to affect how many people are seeing movies in the theater and, like, if it's easier for a family to get Disney+, Plus. And just watch every single like movie that they release with their family in at home, which like it is like that's nice, but like then that's like a whole generation of children who aren't seeing movies on the big screen, and that makes me so sad. Yes, Ava. <laughs> the first movie I ever saw in theaters was The Jungle Book too. I treasure oh that memory. Don't remember the movie at all. I remember that <laughs> that was great, but I was thrilled to go to a theater. I just thought it was the coolest thing. Everybody deserves that. Also, the thought of going to an Amazon theater makes me physically ill. Like, oh, I yeah. puke before I do that and not just like the way I usually puke, like from motion. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you guys said it best. There's nothing like it. I don't, I don't like a future in which like, well, for me personally, it's a turnoff, which might then like dissuade me from like really even being into those things. Like I am 
as Nita Costa said on this week's last week's blanket check episode, like I am Marvel trash. It just means that <laughs> I understand that it's owned by a conglomerate and that these movies aren't actually really that good, except for like three of them. I completely understand it. I do like going seeing them because they're fun and mm-hmm. they have conversation around them. But in a world like this, like my cynicism for that is going to be like, a, I don't care anymore. Like yep. if I want to get, I will just start reading comic books more if I want to get that like fix or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like I don't need, like I don't want to support that. Yeah. And that's really sad to me because like, I always think of like, I'd like to have a diversified movie movie diet. I will watch last year, last year at Marion Bad. Happy three year anniversary, Ava, to your to your first viewing of that. Thank you, Shadow like, Cinema. <laughs> but also, I do want to go see Guardians of the Galaxy too, and I do want to see Parasite, and I do want to see Lady Bird, and I do like I want to see all these things. I don't like a future in which like the middle is completely dropped out, and I'm essentially forced to watch the blockbusters from like you know, up until like last year because I don't not interested in the new ones. It's just just very sad. But yeah. I think we're gonna return to that topic in the future. Uh I actually already have a guest in mind for it. So oh my but gosh. Ava, you've been a wonderful guest this week. Thank you for Thank having you so me. much. Thrilled to be here. Uh a lot coming live from the BCT. <laughs> what up? <laughs> uh Ava, is there anything you'd like to plug or yourself or social or anything? You can say no. Um, I am on Letterboxd. You can see my excellent review of Happiest Season as well as other things there. I'm Ava, D-O-T, Gov. Um, I'm also on Twitter. I'm not Ava.gov on there. I'm little and ugly. (laughs) (laughs) You are little, but you are definitely not ugly. I don't think so either, but sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Elizabeth, catch me on Letterbox and Twitter, wherever you can find me at my name, Elizabeth Rell. I haven't been watching much movies lately, but it's Christmas season, so watch out for those. You can find me on Letterboxd and Instagram at Robert Dolphy on Twitter at Samurai Flicks, um, where you should start seeing me finally re- getting around to reviewing my Kino Lorber. Review Blu-rays. Uh, <laughs> I'm excited for this uh, Faye Dunaway movie called Puzzle of a Downfall Child. <laughs> Sounds cool. Um, but yeah, uh, we'll be back next week uh, with or without a guest. We're not sure yet, but we're going to be talking about non-traditional holiday movies, I'm pretty sure, first. And then maybe the week after we'll do more traditional holiday movies. Mm-hmm. So stay tuned for that. Uh, yeah, that's going to do it for us on A Place for Film. We'll see you at the movies. Good night. Good night. Bye.